All right, all right. Welcome to the Cavus Ships Podcast, and where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, when U.S. Marines were needed in Afghanistan this year, they were able to get on the scene quickly because they were already in theater aboard U.S. Navy amphibious ships deployed in the region. That kind of expeditionary capability is a key ingredient of American naval power, but it shouldn't be taken for granted. We'll talk with an outspoken proponent of expeditionary capabilities, retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Terry McKnight, and we'll offer some thoughts about the rise of the Chinese Navy. But first, a look at naval news around the world. The destroyer USS Arleigh Burke entered the Black Sea November 25th, just nine days after sister ship USS Porter left. The U.S. seems to have ratcheted up its naval presence in the strategic inland sea, possibly in reaction to threatening Russian actions along its border with Ukraine. Arleigh Burke joined the U.S. Navy's forward-deployed forces in Rota, Spain earlier this year and began its first regional cruise in August. In recent weeks, the ship has operated as far north as the Barents Sea, and in the Baltic Sea. The Danish frigate Esbern Snoddy, deployed on an anti-piracy patrol in the waters off West Africa, pursued a fast-moving motorboat November 24th after receiving reports that pirates were operating around merchant ships south of Nigeria. When Danish soldiers aboard a small boat from the Esbern Snoddy called on the pirates to stop, the pirates opened fire, leading to a gunfire exchange that killed four of the eight pirates on the craft, which then sank. The Esbern Snotty had just begun a planned five-month anti-piracy patrol in the Gulf of Guinea, where pirate activity is an ongoing problem and pirate attacks this time of year generally ramp up. In 2020, about 40% of pirate attacks worldwide took place in the waters around the Gulf of Guinea. The destroyer USS The Sullivans returned to her home port of Mayport, Florida on November 24th, bringing to a close more than a year of operations with the British HMS Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group 21. The Sullivans detached from the Queen Liz Group in mid-October while in the Indian Ocean. Also on November 24th, Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 211 flew off their F-35B Joint Strike Fighters from the British carrier while in the Mediterranean, ending their deployment with the British Strike Force. In the Pacific, the destroyer USS Howard pulled into Wellington, New Zealand on November 25th for a port visit. It's the first U.S. Navy warship visit to New Zealand in five years. Notably, in the age of COVID, sailors are being granted liberty in Wellington during the visit. Howard shifted home port from San Diego in August to join U.S. forward-deployed Naval Forces Japan and is on her first regional Western Pacific patrol. And a major congressionally ordered review of U.S. Merchant Marine Academy found a whole host of problems. The report, released in mid-November by the National Academy of Public Administration, or NAPA, detailed numerous problems throughout the academy, from an outdated curriculum focused on lower-level tasks, to mold and decaying buildings on campus, to lower-than-average cultural and racial diversity and sexual assault issues. The report follows another by the Transportation Department's Inspector General, detailing deep fundamental and longstanding issues at the institution. And that's a roundup of Naval News this week. Our guest today is retired Rear Admiral Terry McKnight. Admiral McKnight has just written a, a very nice blog on the Naval Institute Proceedings uh, blog site about expeditionary warfare and how these forces were very useful 
when the uh, evacuation from Afghanistan became far more acute than, than people had planned on. Uh, Admiral McKnight is an experienced person. He has spent, he spent most of his uh, naval career afloat aboard amphibious ships. He commanded two of them, the Whidbey Island uh, amphibious uh, transport and the assault ship Kearsarge. He also uh, was commander of Expeditionary Strike Group 2. Uh, Admiral McKnight, thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning, and it's great to be here to talk about one of my favorite topics, uh, expeditionary warfare. So what was the premise of, of, of what you just wrote for people who didn't see it? Sure. Well, you know, there was a lot of uh, discussion, you know, when the evacuation of, of Afghanistan, of course, you know, there was a, the whole gamut of the uh, American uh, military forces there. But one thing that uh, was was not mentioned as well as I think should have been is the 24th Mew that was out there ready to go. And they provided forces and the ships were ready. They provided aircraft. They provided aircraft cover overhead. And, uh, you know, we saw a lot about the, uh, you know, the, the, the Army forces are there, but the, the Marines were, were integral in that part. One of the key missions of the Marine Corps is the non-evacuation of whether it's an embassy or airport or anything. And that's uh, the mission that the Marine Corps has trained for for many, many years. And that this was probably one of the largest NEO operations we have witnessed in, in decades. And, and the Marines were, were front and center out there. And at the same time that they, this was going on in, in Afghanistan, we, we had the, uh, the, you know, the natural disaster down in Haiti. And uh, quickly, the, uh, the Marines, and uh, they were loaded on to, the, uh, to the L, uh, one of the new LPDs, the Arlington, and were set down there to do uh, you know, humanitarian assistance. So two, inter, two operations almost simultaneously that, that the Marines trained for every single day. And it was just uh, you know, not enough, was in, in my opinion, not enough in the press about it. So I decided to put pen to paper, and off we went. Well, they're always there. I, I mean, you, know, you just mentioned the Arlington as well. That's a San Antonio class ship. When that when those requirements were being finalized, I remember back in the late 90s, uh, there was a whole series of ARGs, amphibious ready groups with embarked marine expeditionary units, the Muse, that were disaggregated once they got in, into theater. They would so to, so for example, typically a, a three-ship ARG would 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 leave the US East Coast, go over to Rota, Spain, pick up some equipment. Then one ship would go into the Mediterranean, one would go to the east coast of Africa, one might go to the west coast of Africa. And the marine units would, would shuttle between them as needed. So a more sophisticated ship was needed, and that, that would result was the San Antonio class. These ships are also able to really uh, be command centers um, and, and host a great number of things all by themselves. They're almost uh, almost as, as, as capable as the big assault ships. But we're talking now about possibly uh, decommissioning one or two of those in the next budget ahead of their well ahead of their scheduled life cycle retirement. Um, do you think that, I mean, does that, does that, does that make sense to you, Admiral? I mean, when you're talking about divest to invest, that's the theme here. They want to, they want to pull things out of service so they can put money into things that are, uh, they haven't bought yet. Right. Uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, one thing, Chris, you know, I'm kind of I'll jump a little bit here. It's, you know, the, the importance of what what our maritime forces mean to this nation. And just like you said, the, uh, you know, the San Antonio class is a splendid example of a ship that has multiple capability. It's got a well deck so it can do the landing craft. It's got a it's got a huge flight deck and it's got a medical capability. Uh, so it can do multiple operations, and that's the type of ship that we need to build today. When we, when I was first a young 
you know, naval officer. We had uh, ships that did single missions. It was, you know, I was on an LKA. It was a cargo. We had the LST that carried, you know, went to the beach. And then, you know, we had the other. So we had a five ship ARG, basically. And now we've taken ships that are more capable and we've reduced the, the size of them. And, they're, and they're, they are bigger ships, uh, but they're very capable. And the San Antonio class uh, is a very, very capable amphibious platform. And like it can do multiple missions in, in a, uh, you know, in a, uh, you know, just a, just, you, you know, flip of a switch, you can send it out to do, you know, humanitarian operations or do a combat operations. So it's a very, very capable ships. And we'd be, uh, the LSD-41 Whidbey Island class is going to be replaced by the a new LPD class, uh, and, you know, and it's it's a it's a great addition to the amphibious force. Admiral, thanks again for uh, for joining us. This is Chris Cervello. Um, you know, expanding the aperture just a touch. Almost a decade ago, you wrote an article for Proceedings that talked about too many missions, too few ships. And I've heard you speak on that, uh, whether it's just in conversations among professionals or at at, at events. Uh, we're, we're ten years later, and you know you could argue that in many ways we're busier than, than we were ten years, or certainly equally as busy. Um, do you still feel the same way? And um, you know, where where do you see that problem going? Uh, you, you know, in, in the next half decade to to decade. Well, you know, Chris, that's that's, no, that's a great question, and and the answer to it is yes, we're we're still short of, of ships. Uh, uh, you know, the a uh, couple of years ago, the 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 thirty year shipbuilding plan, you know, took it up took it, took it above three hundred ships. Uh, we have uh, you know wavered at that three hundred number. Uh, the budgets that are coming out, you know, like uh, we we talk, you know, want to decommission a lot of ships. And we cannot build ships that fast. So we are going to, we are never, uh, I don't think in the next, you know, decade going to pick up. The other, the other major, I mean, it's an, it's an issue is the uh, Columbia class submarine, uh, which is extremely expensive and it's, it's a huge bill. And, and uh, we're not seeing the, the, the dollar increases in the ship construction accounts to, to make sure that we catch up. Uh, so to modernize, uh, we, you know, we're, we're trying to get some of the newest uh, systems on on some of the older ships, but we, we are definitely short. I mean, you, you know, you tell, do we have enough ships? You know, we, we will never have enough ships because of the demand. I mean, and, and we are, as I've said, a maritime nation. And the requirements, whether it's in the South China Sea, we have, you know, operations, you know, in, uh, in the Black Sea now, everything. So we we definitely need more ships, and and I I think that we our budgets need to increase definitely in the ship construction accounts. Pairing the two topics, uh, you know, your most recent article and this idea of you know I think you like most navalists agree that more is needed. While we wait to build more ships, and while we wait to decide to build more ships, um, can we be doing things different and better with the current force structure that we have? Do we have our mix of ships right? Um, for the current uh, missions, whether it's to to be a a nine one one force either at the high end or for humanitarian, I'd love to get your your thoughts on on this because I know that when you were ESG two, um, you guys did things different than what was currently being done at, at the time, um, and, and so I wonder how that experience um, you know influences uh, your thinking on today's current challenges. Well, you know, Chris, that's a that's a great question, and uh, and you know, I know that the, the leadership of the Navy and the Marine Corps are always looking at ways we can 
you know, it would do it better. But one, th one theme that has always, and it, you know, it, it goes back to one of my favorite admirals, Admiral Mullen, who said he wanted the thousand ship Navy. And of course, everybody did backflips and said, we'll never get a thousand ships. But what he meant was the allies. Uh, we're seeing a great operation right now with the Queen Elizabeth. You know, she's sailing basically, I don't want to say global, but, you know, going to the Mediterranean, out to the South China Sea. And we're right there with her. And uh, we, we're doing operations, you know, in Japan. Uh, we just signed an agreement with Australia. So the, the key is that we have to we have to, you know, support our coalition forces but because we can't do it alone. And it's a it's a global problem. It's not just a U.S. problem. You know what, what's happening in in the South China Sea, I mean, every day you pick up the newspaper and, and uh, you know, you see, you know, that you know, something's happening out there. And we've had, we got Canadian forces out there. We've got Japanese and Australian. So I think that, I think we have the right mix and, and you know, and doing the right type of operations. But what we need to do is make sure that our allies, you know, can integrate into our circuits and work and operate the way we do. So I think that's, that would be the key for us out here in the future. So switching over a little bit from what the U.S. Navy and U.S. Marine Corps are doing to what the pacing threat is doing, the Chinese. Uh, you, when you were, uh, you you commanded uh, Combined Task Force 151, CTF 151, out in 5th Fleet. This was the Gulf of Aden region. This was created back when the, the piracy problem off the coast of Somalia was particularly acute. And at the time, uh, the Chinese began their first extended blue water deployments, sending task forces out there. Uh, I remember talking to you quite some time ago about uh, your experiences with them. That was early on. You had some interactions with them, um, and they had a lot to learn. But they've been doing that now for, I think, 12 years, something like that. Um, they're on the 39th consecutive escort force that's uh, deployed out there similar to us they about a three ship uh force goes out for for about six months at a time um they've really gotten a ton of experience out of this now i mean i mean you've really seen them grow but when it when 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 you're watching them operate today how do you how do you view them thinking back on your you know bridge to bridge experience and and what you see now right so, I, you know, when I came back, Chris, and, you know, we talked about this, you know, the, when uh, we did a face-to-face -face with the, with Admiral Du, who was the, uh, the, the Admiral out there with the, with, the, with the Chinese Naval Force. And, you know, we were all anticipating, you know, the questions he's going to, he was going to ask. And one of the big things that he asked about was logistics. And at that time, and we still do, we have, you know, a, we have a, a, a base out in Djibouti. Well, uh, Google, who's got a huge base out there in Djibouti right now, right. the Chinese, and they they are all over Africa. You know, they've uh, you know they've you know the we always talk about you know Alfred Sarah Mahan and you know the maritime forces. And they have taken you know a, a chapter out of that of what Mahan wrote, and you know and and they have the largest merchant fleet there. They're building a navy faster than we're building. So they understand that if they are going to be a global power, they have got to have a, a sufficient maritime force. Now, you know, the, the question is, you know, what, what do the Chinese want to do? I, they definitely want to dominate the South China Sea. And that they, they are clear about that. Uh, you know, a lot has been written and a lot of anticipation on what's going to happen with, with Taiwan. And their goal is, is to, you know, you know, have Taiwan come back into their, their realm. So, 
So there's a lot going on, and they understand that maritime power is going to is going to be the way to you know they see us. You know we, uh, you know we've deployed carriers you know for years, and and how the requirements to deploy ships at extended distance, and they've taken those lessons, and they they are coming on board with them uh, rather rapidly, I'd say. Of course, they're building three uh, large assault ships, Type Zero Seven Five. Assault ships now, which like a lot of their ships look very much like like ours. They look like a like a big um, LHD LHA type ship. They're building them very fast. One's already commissioned. One is on trials. Another one is uh, probably going to be be entering service uh, next year. Um, you know, like sort of like the aircraft carriers, they are moving out in different areas where they don't have a lot of experience operating. But they're moving out in a big way, and they're moving out very fast. When I mean, we've 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 talked about the air, their issues with aircraft carriers here. When you see these pretty sophisticated ships, large ships that they're building very fast, uh, what what kind of issues do you see when? I'm not talking about capability per se, but issues. What are they having to deal with when they go so big, so fast? Uh, especially in areas where they haven't done, they, they don't have the expertise that maybe the U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine Corps team has built up over the decades. What do you think when you see that? Well, you know, you know, Chris, we're all, uh, you know, read a lot of history, but you know, you, it 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 kind of is rewinding the tape of a hundred years ago. What you know, what Japan, you know, wanted to do. It just, I mean, it seems to me, it's it looks exactly like that. Right. I mean, they, I don't think they want to dominate the world, but they want to dominate the South China Sea. And they're looking at numbers. They say, okay, we may not have the capability or the sophistication of the U.S. forces, but we're just going to outnumber them. And uh, I mean, we'll have we'll have more ships. We'll have you know we'll have more submarines. And and it's just it's it, it, you know it's a magnitude for us to say you know if the, the their you know their carrier may not be as capable as our carrier, our new carrier four class, but they're sure going to have two or three of them out there, and it's going to be it's going to be a complicated equation for us. So. Uh, they're looking at just numbers and maybe not, you know, they're maybe do the 80% solution. You know, we try to do the, the 110% solution while they're, they're just going to get numbers out there and try to compound the problem. For do you think their fleet, they, they have about nine or so, these type 071 LPD type ships, they're going to have three big assault ships. They have, have quite a number of LSTs, smaller ships. Um, do you think they're at the point now where that fleet could carry out an invasion of Taiwan, an, an opposed invasion of Taiwan, 100 miles across the Taiwan Strait. Is, I don't, are they, I don't are they think there yet? In, here we are at the end of 20, you know, 21, 2022. They are mm. probably, uh, I'm going to say, in a ba they're probably in the double uh, A baseball right now. Uh, and I think that they, you know, and of course, you know, uh, Admiral Stavridis, his projection is 2034 in his, in his book. So I would say, you know, in the next five years, I think if, if the way they're the pace that they're going, I think, you know, by 2030, uh, they they will have a force capable of, of, of making it uh, going after Taiwan a huge problem for us. So I'd say in the next, uh, in, in definitely in the next decade, they'll be ready to go. So Amber, I'll, I'll ask my last question. I mean, with, with that in mind, um, where do we need we being the U.S. Navy? Where do we need to put our effort? Uh, and our resources um, to be prepared for that continued growth uh, and to 
either oppose them in the South China Sea, but to certainly compete with them around the world? Well, you know, we just saw, you know, one of the things that is is on the is on the front page that our company looks at a lot of is, of course, hypersonic weapons. Uh, you know, the F-35 is, is a fifth generation fighter, but it's a single engine fighter. And now they're questioning, you know, if it has the legs, uh, you know, to go out there. Uh, I don't think this is going to be a, uh, you know, Trafalgar, you know, face to face sea battle. It's going to be at long distances, uh, you know, and. And you know the, the the first phase of these operations, I don't think I don't think it's going to be kinetic. It's going to be non-kinetic. So how you know can you get into other you know circuits and things like that? So we have to we have to figure out you know our you know our 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 circuits secure our uh, you know and do we have the uh, you know the capability to fight at longer distances? I think you know that's one. The Air Force has got it. You know the the new tanker that's out there. They just said, hey, we're we're tanker short right now. If we're going to fight it fight at longer ranges, so. It's a it's a it's a different battle. You know, we've been the last 20 years. We've been in Iraq and Afghanistan and and the maritime forces, I'd say, uh, you know, we're, we're on the on the bench. Uh, and now we've got to catch up with our our electronic warfare systems, our missile systems and, of course, you know, our, our long range capability. All right. Well, our guest today has been a retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Terry McKnight. Sir, thank you very much for joining us. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure, and I wish you all the happiest of holidays. And and a gobble gobble to you too, sir. Thank you. Now hear this. Now hear this. Okay, it's time for Squawk Box. Mr. Savello has some thoughts on the Chinese Navy. Thanks, Chris. In our last segment, Admiral McKnight briefly touched on his interaction with the Chinese Navy while he was commander of the Anti-Piracy Task Force 151. In late 2008, when China first deployed two small surface groups to be a part of the international effort to combat piracy off the Horn of Africa, many naval experts were caught a bit off guard. Such international maritime missions were typically carried out by more mature navies like the United States or its European allies. This 2008 milestone is an important baseline for tracking the progress, ambition, and sophistication of the Chinese Navy. These deployments were the first real steps of moving beyond regional ambitions and demonstrating China's goal of being a player on the international maritime scene. Desires that led to blue water logistics hubs, as the Admiral mentioned, and a shipbuilding effort that has turned them into the largest Navy in the world. As the world decides whether to view the Chinese Navy as 10 feet tall or simply a paper tiger, Studying and pulling lessons from the last decades of missions to the Gulf of Aden and Indian Ocean may help unlock answers to questions about what the next decade of sailing with, around, and against the Chinese Navy may have in store. Drawing on the insights from resources and experts like Admiral McKnight should be critical to our future planning and budgeting. Understanding Chinese learning, sailing, and sustainment curves may help us unlock an insight that will be beneficial for future competition and God forbid conflict. Okay. Well said, Chris. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the defense and aerospace group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish ships on Twitter. And remember this podcast is available on iTunes, Google play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.